Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. This is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, the five books of the Breakfast Club ends with the last character we see raising his arm in triumph. Bender, played by Judd Hirsch, is the rebel without a pause. He's rude, loud, complicated, and clearly hurting. In this episode, Avram and I are talking about generational anger and domestic violence, how to break a pattern, and what was Bender's blonde joke? Was it ever finished? Here we go. All right. I was watching all these back episodes of uh, watching like all these clips of Bender. So first of all, I guess we'll say welcome back to everybody because we had a week off. Avram moved, which is a big deal. <laughs> I'm glad you survived that experience. We're still in the middle of it, actually, it's a which is why I'm in my car. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, all right, so we are talking today about, we're finishing off the Chronicles of the Breakfast Club, talking about Bender. Um, I actually was just reading in one of those like 15 things you didn't know about the Breakfast Club that Nicolas Cage and John Cusack were both considered for that role before they approached Judge Hirsch, um, which is wild because they would have played totally different like, I feel like Nick Cage would have been the Judd Hirsch type character. John Cusack would have been a totally different um, feel, I think. Um, but you know who else I could have seen playing that is, um, what's his name? Iron Man. Oh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. I totally could have he, seen him playing that. He would have been character. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he would have been great. You know, do, Ellie, do you know the magazine Commentary? Yeah. Yeah, so they um, they have a guy, Rob Long, um, who is a writer for Cheers. He was one of the main writer for Cheers. Uh, and I think he, he slants conservative and in Hollywood, that's a big deal. So they have him write articles about Hollywood from a conservative uh, perspective. So he, he had a fascinating um, article about TV shows that came out like All in the Family, um, oh, what was Michael J. Fox? Um, Family Ties? Family Ties, yeah. Where these shows came out and they were destined to be one thing, but they became another thing. And the thing that they became was incredible, but the writers didn't anticipate it that way. Yeah. So for example, both those shows, All in the Family and uh, Family Ties, were supposed to be a commentary on the backward Republicans, you know, the backward conservative hicks, right? Uh, for uh, All in the Family, Archie Bunker was yeah. supposed to be the joke, and yeah. Michael Keaton, as the conservative Republican, they both became the most famous of both of those TV shows, really? and the writers never intended to be that way. Yeah. And so what Rob Long Not argues famous, is they were that beloved. They were beloved, beloved characters. To this day. Yeah. To this day, people make fun of them, so but they're still the most well-known characters. Yeah. And what Rob Long's argument is that writers filmmakers who do well with this know when to get out of the way and allow 
the audience or the 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 energy to carry it where it needs to go. Uh, and, you know, I think about John Cusack as Bender or someone else. It would have been a different film, might have been as good. But those little accidents and maybe the brilliance of John Hughes to just get out of the way and let it play out the way it has to play out, I just think is a sign of, um, you know, a, a very, um, someone who knows their craft. Yeah, for sure. I think they said, you know, much of that movie was improvised. There were a lot of pieces that just ended up in the film that weren't in the script. And Judd Hirsch apparently was like so in character at one point that they had to like ask him to tone it down. Like he was just bugging everyone, <laughs> like really causing problems on the set. And then there's like that famous scene of him walking through the vent, the air vent, telling a, a joke about a blonde that he never finishes because he crashes through the ceiling. Right. One sec, that, that wasn't planned? No, totally improvised. No, when, when he crashes through. Oh, no, no, So that part was, but the fact that he's like doing it and like making up that he's, he was making up a joke as he was uh, doing it and he never finishes the joke. So apparently there's a whole Reddit thread now of people trying to finish the joke and come up with the punchline, which is kind that's of funny. Um, okay. So I was thinking, um, so here's what I was thinking, Ellie, you tell me what, um, where, where you want to go with this. Uh, you know, my, my interest in, um, when I was thinking about today's episode, uh, my interest is in family violence. Um, it's, uh, it's something that um, comes up in my practice more than you would think. You know, a lot of people think that therapists deal with uh, suicide all the time, or they, they deal with, um, you know, affairs all the time, but it's not true. I mean, a lot of the stuff is more subtle, but one of the common things that comes up is some sort of physical family, not just emotional, but some sort of physical uh, family violence, either between from parent, child, or from uh, spouse to spouse. And um, uh, especially during COVID right now, if the numbers are to be believed, uh, uh, domestic abuse and physical violence, uh, parental uh, abuse towards a child, uh, is quite high um, and will likely to grow as this becomes more chronic. So I thought that this episode is apropos. Um, it's it's a complicated topic. There are no easy solutions. So if people are tuning in and they're hoping for, you know, a deep breathing exercise to, to get over this, I think that this is complicated. Um, and uh, I thought um, Bender was a good person to discuss and, and maybe to get a bit, a bit of a better understanding, not the Bender in the detention center, right? The bully the, uh, you know, well, we could talk about that, but what I thought was just a little bit to go back a generation, to go back to his family, uh, who we don't meet. He's the, I think he's the only character that shows up to school without a parent and leaves without a parent, right? Is that, yep. Would that be true? Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, anyways, I, I, I written notes down here. Um, what, what were you thinking? What were you looking to uh, discuss about Bender today? You know, I, I actually really like this idea because we're also dealing, you know, we're in this particular time where there is a threat of things becoming violent or, you know, with the elections, with different things that are happening in the world. And there's, there's this kind of constant question, like, could it explode? You know, and if it does, what is that? Is it productive? Is it not productive? Is it right? Is it not like all of these questions around violence in general, does violence ever fix or solve anything and it, it seems like this would be a good way to talk about it also in the micro and also be able to address a little bit of the, the macro of that so yeah i really like that 
So you know, I have I have to say something. I'm going to open up a can of worms here, but yeah. I, I don't think the individual that I'm going to I'm not going to mention anyone by name, and I don't think they listen. But I have a colleague of mine, uh, not in Canada, um, and uh, not the, if the colleague who's listening to this thinks it's them, it's not them. So it's not you. <laughs> it's a it's a different colleague. But they spend uh, they they have spent the last couple of years fomenting. I can only describe it as hate towards one particular group of people in the United States. And they spent all their time ginning up this, this stuff. And I thought they had the gall this week to come out and talk about, we have to use a certain theoretical model to dial down the anxiety, to dial down the anxiety. I'm thinking to myself, you've spent two years as a therapist, as a clinician, right. othering other people. Whipping and so- uh, right. Sorry, like, exactly. And so I, right. And so I think that um, uh, when emotions run high, there is something in the human species that can resort to violence very, very quickly. If any of us have any illusions, by the way, that we are above this, you only have to look at fighting being banned in the NHL, right? fighting being banned in all sports and we're getting really tough. And what's the most popular sport right now? MMA. Interesting. It is the most, it is most popular upcoming sport. It makes them, I think it makes the most money uh, of any sport, of any new sport anyways. And it's the most violent. It's much more violent than hockey MMA. If you watch MMA, I mean, that's real right. caged, you know, Roman cage gladiator fighting. type yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really cage fun. fighting. And so there is something, and one other thing I just want to uh, throw out here. Uh, many years ago, when I worked as a uh, telephone therapist for Warren Chappelle, uh, uh, an EAP organization, we would work with big companies. They, they would hire, they would uh, have insurance for their employees. And so we would have big, like, um, who was the big one? The cement company. What's that big cement company in Ontario? I forget. Anyways, big cement company, these big, you know, hospitals. And I would say... 70 to 80% of our calls were anger uh, requests for anger management for uh, their staff, a lot of it uh, physical. And the same people would be cycling in and out of our programs over and over and over again. Uh, so this is a, um, it's a big topic. Um, let's dive in and see okay. where, we, where we go with this. Awesome. What do we know about Bender like as it starts out? Do you want me to give a, a one, on one foot? Please. Yeah, okay. So. So as the movie starts out, Bender, um, we see everybody being driven to detention by their parents and the whole interchange in the car. Uh, we don't see that with Bender. Um, you know, the way he dresses, the way he carries himself, the way he talks to people. He's like, you know, the guy at, in high school who either that would have been your crew because you were in your rebellious mode or that's the guy that you would stay away from because chances are there was going to be trouble. Um, he's got a bit of that menacing vibe around him, especially with his language. Um, and definitely what we know is that as the movie progresses, we find out that his home is a, viol is a violent place, that he um, definitely is in a place where he doesn't um, you know, you almost wonder if maybe he's good with being in detention because it means he doesn't have to be at home. Um, at one point, you know, when that when the teacher's telling him, "Do you want another detention?" and they're having this confrontation, and you kind of start to wonder, like maybe he wants to be there um, because it's probably easier. Uh, but you see underneath clearly, he's a thinking person. 
you know, he's not a dumb guy. Um, and that he himself is trying to figure out what his life is going to be like based on what it's been like. And that, that he's struggling with that. And the teacher nails it at one point. The, um, the teacher says to him, you know, you're going to be nothing. And you kind of watch, watch that um, affect him because clearly that's already something he's thinking about. So I think he's complicated and it's hard to watch because, you know, now, especially when you start to think about domestic violence and we understand that, I think more than we did maybe in the 80s in the same way, there's more transparency around it. I think in the 80s, it was still a bit hidden. Um, so I think it's painful as a parent to watch. You know, <clears throat> I, um, two quick thoughts about what you just said. The first thing is that I think that the teacher and Bender are made for each other, meaning that the teacher is as much a bully um, as Bender is. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so there are times where, where John Hughes and his brilliance shows how pathetic both characters are. Um, in that scene where he's like, come on, hit me, just, just give me one shot. And Bender looks like a, a scared little animal, like he, right. he's cowering. And the teacher just looks like an idiot. Right. He's just like, like a, what, what, what's, what's wrong with you that, right. you're, that you're trying to pick a fight with a, with a teenager? They both look like, they both look pretty pathetic. And, and I think that uh, Hughes, uh, Hughes must have, you know, uh, you know, was trying to indicate that there was some sort of generational thing to this that they're you know that um you know that this teacher wouldn't be able to get into it with brian or claire in that way that there's yeah. something about the teacher and bender that yeah. seemed to have a a, a do-si-do uh, as we say the other thing i was thinking like about similar, Ellie, they, they have similar looks similar voice similar <clears throat> you can see something's being lined up i also wonder about that that scene i always think when that scene when he says come on hit me and bender doesn't I always imagine that what's going through his head is if I hit this person, I'll be like my father. Like if he hits the teacher. Yeah, I don't know. Never I think actually it's... see him hit anybody in the film. Yeah, you see, I, my hunch, and it's just a hunch, and I have no way to prove this. Uh, my hunch is that Bender knows what it's like to have escalations of violence with someone stronger than you. Right. Um, and Bender's a tough guy until he's in a situation that would remind him of home, meaning that He's, he's probably in the home where he pushed his father a couple of times and then got the cigar right. on his arm or he pushed his father and then got punched in the face. And I think there's that line by Mike Tyson, Every, everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face. Wow, right. You know? Um, and so uh, my hunch is that um, Bender cowers because not because of the legal ramifications, not because, you know, he's going to get sued because he, the teacher's stronger than him. I mean, maybe not. I mean, right. it's true. I've seen, I've seen YouTube videos where kids hit their teachers, but the, the, guy, the teacher's a big guy. Like, I right. mean, it's not a small guy, um, but who knows? We don't know because it's a movie and uh, we don't know. But he, here's something, Ellie, that I, that, uh, I remember very clearly. Um, when I was in elementary school, I was, uh, I was, I was bullied for probably from grade two, right until high school in different, different ways, but de high, elementary was the worst. And um, one of the guys that uh, would, uh, would pick on me all the time, it was parent teacher interviews. I was leaving with my, um, my mom. We were rounding the corner at Crestview Elementary School in Shamity in, uh, in Laval. And I saw the bully. And he was there with his dad and his dad starts wailing on him right in the hallway. <laughs> like, I, I've never seen that before. Wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And his father was just like, not, not punches, but like slaps, like full on, but in front of everybody. 
And so, and there was this, you know, even when I was only maybe I was about 10, 11, even then, you know, I, I kind of, I felt bad for him, even though he picked on me and I hated the guy, <clears throat> excuse me, I understood this, what he probably goes through every night, you know? So there seems to be, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a generational thing with violence. Um, and it likely goes back many, many generations. Um, and I think what Hughes wants us to, I think, you, you let me know what you think. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think what Hughes wants us to believe is that there are angels and devils. And that kids are angels. And there's a parent that's a devil. Um, and, you know, by the time the film ends, um, you really, uh, 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 I don't know if hate's the right word, but you... you you know, you really have empathy towards Bender and you really hate his father for doing this to him. What I'm hoping to do today um, is to maybe bring more, some more nuance into understanding the dynamics behind violence in families um, to get a better understanding of, A, what is it? And also, what can you do about it? Right. You know, because this is called pop parenting and we're trying to, you know, sort of discuss how to up our game in this way. Um, and this is a complex one. So, right. Yeah, How's that sound? you're right. I think it's it's interesting. At the end of the movie, you kind of end up with <clears throat> your parents, really. You know, there it's an interesting agenda there of of viewing the kids as the either the victims or the the good guys and and all the adults, except for the janitor as like the bad guys. So it's interesting that that dichotomy set up. So how does this? <clears throat> how does that? Like in terms of the violence, like where does it escalate where it crosses the line? You know, I was watching the Chicago Seven on Netflix about the riots in Chicago and, and just, just shows how intensely, like literally like a light switch, it can flip from like being already a tense situation to like being beaten up with clubs. So where, how does that happen? What, what goes on where it suddenly flips? And do there need to be certain things in place for it to become violent? Because um, I don't think everybody has that experience in terms of when the, the, the anger switch flips. Yeah. <clears throat> so first of all, I think that, um, you know, we've mentioned this name many times. Uh, you know, Dr. Murray Bowen, who founded Family Systems Theory, studied animals. He tried to, he tried to, he tried to, he left psychoanalysis, Freudian analysis, because he didn't think it was scientific enough, which I mean, I, anybody that knows psychoanalysis is not going to argue that. I mean, uh, concepts like the id uh, and ego and superego and Jungian took it in his way. These are, um, they're metaphors uh, and you can't prove them. And they're, you, you know, no one can locate the superego. I don't think an MRI or fMRI has ever located the superego or the id. Uh, Bowen was not, uh, he, he did not think that was um, scientific and he wanted a more rigorous scientific process of human behavior. So he went to the animal kingdom um, and he would observe uh, ant colonies and, and wolf packs. And he was trying to understand, is there a similarity? And he, he drew uh, quite a few parallels. And I think, I think I never understood it until I read Bone in the original. Now I'm having a better understanding of some of our nature uh, and nurture uh, stuff um, and how we operate in packs. So let me give you an example. In 1984, I was working, I was working in McDonald's near Blue Bonnets in Montreal, flipping burgers. And the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. It was 84, 85, or 86. It was somewhere there. It was the first time they won the Stanley Cup. All my friends, middle-class Jews from Montreal, nice boys, they're all married, by the way, they have kids, just good guys, went down to St. Catherine Street and with everybody else, looted stores, 
one of my friends tripped and fell on a on a piece of a, a glass uh, pane glass got stuck in his butt a, whole, a big chunk of glass um and they looted stores they broke windows they smashed cars and they called me and they told me about it and i'd like to think that i was above all that because of my upbringing but let me tell you something if i wasn't working at mcdonald's flipping burgers would I have said no and not gone downtown? Oh, I, I, I'm not so sure about that. Right. Um, there is something about um, uh, the mob uh, that triggers some sort of tribal uh, something in us that it's very hard to find what Bowen talked about, your, your sense of differentiation, your sense of autonomy. What is different between me and the group? Where, where, where do I start and stop and where do they you know, start and stop. And, and, and we get caught up in this um, group think and then uh, act, group act. Uh, and so um, I think that it's primordial. I think it touches on some part of our reptilian brain. Um, maybe, it, and again, I'm, I'm throwing darts blindly here, Ellie. It's not uh, evolutionary biology and uh, animal behavior is not my, my expertise. But I'm wondering if it also has something to do with, you know when, um, you know how it works with piranhas? It, one piranha takes a little nip of a fish and then the blood comes up and then they smell the blood and the right. school comes. Yeah. It's not the school at the beginning, it's one. Right. And so I wonder if there's something in us that once we sniff violence or we see people going crazy, everybody go crazy. Ellie, I, I when I was living in Toronto, was it the G, G20? Was that yeah. where all the violence was on Queen Street? Yeah. So I told Elisa, I told my wife, I'm gonna go down and videotape. Like, Please don't go. I said, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. <clears throat> so I take my bike, I drive down to Queen and, um, and Spadina. And I watched, I just watched what was happening. Um, it was really scary, first of all, the police and, and all the all the stuff. But I, I bet you if you spoke to any of those, most of those people's individuals five days before, these are not people who randomly, you know, set police cars on fire and right. try to start fights with cops. There's something about the group there's yeah. something about the group. Now, I personally don't think, well, I'm not sure where you're going with this. I'm not so sure that's what Hughes was conveying uh, here uh, in the Brexit Club. I think, um, so uh, is, that, is it okay if I, uh, I want to pivot to a little bit of um, the family dynamics that I think might be going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So <clears throat> Ellie, I was listening to your, um, your talk uh, yesterday you gave it a couple of days ago. You were talking about um, differentiation of self. What was the title of the talk you were? Uh, I was talking about, it's part of my night, uh, Tuesday night class. So it was talking about Parsha Vayera and about the sacrifice, the binding of Isaac. I was talking about the sacrifice of Isaac and how Rabbi Sachs gives a very different interpretation of that. Usually it's interpreted as oh, it's the, te the test for Abraham was whether or not he trusted God enough. Whereas Rabbi Sachs flips it and says, no, actually the test was, do you own your children or not? And, and can you differentiate yourself enough from your children? So he's talking about separation and, and coming together. And then I used yeah. it in your book, um, which was great. Yeah, so I mean, we're just gonna continue that theme because I think it has something very important to say about what's happening with, um, both Bender and his father, and likely Bender's father and his father, mm. um, as well as Bender's mother. And what is the likelihood that Bender is going to continue the violence in his future relationship? So let's, let's just unpack this a bit. So we're gonna try to understand uh, parental violence 
using the idea of, of differentiation of self. And once again, the general idea of differentiation of self is this. It's the ability to know who you are, what your thoughts and your feelings are in close connection to people and when you're apart. And that, it's to, and that people who are better at this are consistent in that. People who are not as good at this tend to lose themselves in the group or they lose themselves when they're on their own. Okay, and so, I mean, there's different ways to understand it, but that's that's standing on one foot here. Right, you're saying like right so distance. Let, What's the right distance <clears throat> for me to be able to like fully have myself and fully be in relationship in some way? And how do you that's right. and, that dance? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, from a family systems perspective, the violence that's going on between Bender and his father and all sort of domestic violence is a symptom of families who are lower on the scale of differentiation, a harder time negotiating those two things. Now you might be thinking, come on, really? Is that really what's going on? Well, let's unpack this a bit and see how this would play itself out. Yeah. So the thing is, uh, people who, um, you know, people who are higher on this scale, okay? they have a better ability to manage their reactivity towards their partners and their children. So they just have a general sense of what's going on here? What's my contribution? What's their contribution? People who are on the lower scale, they can't differentiate between that. So, meaning so if they're like, three- for instance, like if a parent, like if a kid does something, <clears throat> if they're higher on the differentiation scale, they're able to say, my kid made that choice. My job as a parent is to respond in some way rather than my kid is me. And when they do that, it reflects upon like who I am in some way. Is that kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I would say that's the middle, but there's even a higher, even a higher point. So let, let's take the parent, you, you go downstairs, right? You, you discover in your parents, in your child's room, they have a little grow up. They're growing marijuana in the corner, okay? At the lowest end of the scale, right? you see something broken in your child. Everything is about what were you thinking? What is wrong with you? What, what kind of problem do you have? We've got to bring you to a therapist to fix this thing. Where did you get this idea from? The focus is completely on the child. I mean, at the lowest end, this is where you know a parent might come in and punch their kid or take them by the collar and throw them out of the house. I, I don't know, okay? The middle would be something a little bit closer to what you're saying, okay? The higher one though, would be a parent sitting down and reflecting and going, how did things get this way? And what was my part? Mm. How did it get this way that I, right under, right under my nose in my own house, there was a grow up happening in my child's room. And I had no idea that this was happening. What was my part in any of this? This is different than a parent who, parent, some parents I work with who just beat themselves up all the time because they're a horrible parent. Okay. That's also operating at a very low scale. This is more of a mature discussion with one's partner about what we have to have a discussion about what's happening in this house. Somehow I have done something here. I have dropped the ball in some way. There is some sort of stress that's happening here where my child thinks it's even okay because this does not reflect my values or maybe it does and I didn't even realize it. Whatever the case may be, that's it. So, um, so that's one. Another one is uh, people who are operating on a higher level of differentiation uh, they act thoughtfully under stress. Now, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> there's an idea. <coughs> I apologize. There's an idea here that um, families who are more mature have no stress. They just don't have stress. The people who are more immature 
and have more problems, they have stress. That is a, that's just not true. Okay. Ask anybody who's been through a renovation, <clears throat> myself, or a move or any, or, or a major surgery or anything, there's going to be stress. The people who operate at a higher level of differentiation are able to lower their anxiety to a degree to be nimble and creative and muster the resources and, and use their own creativity and ingenuity to change on the fly. Families lower on the scale get very, um, they get in their trenches and they keep trying to do things the way they always were and get very frustrated when the results aren't happening the same way they were a week ago. Right. Okay. Um, and the finally, uh, the, the final thing here uh, is that uh, in different people who operate at a higher level of this thing called differentiation of self, they allow for both closeness and autonomy in their relationships. And so what that would mean would be, as you said before, Bender and his father, if they were, in, if there was a, a higher maturity in his household, less anxiety, would be able to come in and out of their lives without getting too anxious. Okay. Or in another case might be Bender would not have to get involved with his parents fighting. Now there's a scene in the breakfast club. Now I didn't pick this up belly in the movie. I had to read it in the script. So I don't know if the script missed something here or not. You, maybe you, you'll remember, but in the script, when Bender is doing that whole thing with you, you know what it's like in my home. And he goes, F you, no F you, all that thing in this script, that original dialogue is between mother and father. Did you know that? Cause I didn't know that. I thought it was only between Bender and father. Yeah, you mean he's describing something going on <clears throat> between his parents. Between his parents. That he's observing. Yes. Right, right. and then he's somehow giving, it moves right. to him. Right, right, and it's but it is very unclear. It's almost as if he himself doesn't know who's who in that whole conversation. Like it's just so well, chaotic and confusing. Is the dad talking to the mom? Is the mom talking to the dad? Are they talking to him? Like you can barely follow it. Right. So in the script, it very specifically says that uh, it says um, Bender uh, mimicking mother, da, da, da. Bender mimicking father. And then Bender jumps in and says, what about you, dad? What about you, dad? This is exactly what we have talked about in previous episodes on pop parenting called triangles. This is where a child's anxiety is going as the parents are fighting. It's going up, up, up up and they can't contain it and they take a side and they take a side and they pick the angel and they pick the devil and this drives parents crazy because when you're the angel parent feels great when you're you know when your child comes up to you and they they just they get you they understand and the other one is there are no good rotten they were the ones who destroyed this family and so um when when bender does that scene it's so beautiful john hughes wrote it when he picks his mother's side, because he says to his father, what about you, dad? What about you, dad? And then slam, he, he says something like that. Right. Right. It's some sort of violence. Yeah. Okay. So let's see if, so for any questions, by the way, Ellie, from what I've laid out in terms of um, higher and lower differentiation and how this plays out in families. Any questions? Yeah. I think that's pretty clear. Like you're basically laying out that there are levels of... <clears throat> how to deal with the anxiety and, and and how you respond to it in terms of being able to take personal responsibility for whatever's going on outside of you will determine how much anxiety will be in the system or not. Is that 
Is that true? That's right. That's right. Now, now the, the question here is if people are, you know, what does that do with violence? Like, wh wh where does the violence come in? Right. Okay. So this is an idea that, um, if you like, I can find the original paper. Uh, it was research done by, I think her name is Dr. Scoudern. Um, she's, uh, she's a psychologist and a researcher in the United States. Uh, and she, with a few of her colleagues, were trying to understand violence from a family systems perspective. And one of her colleagues put forward an idea, and it's fascinating. It's 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 a little controversial, but I think it's fascinating, and I think there's something. We never to talk this. about controversial things here, so I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> so here we go. If you are thinking cause and effect, you are thinking bad parent, innocent child. Right. Okay. When you're thinking, when you, you know, when you think, of, <clears throat> excuse me, right. child you're thinking of like a parent hitting a child, the, the parent <clears throat> is bad and the child is good. And that's the dichotomy with it. Like that's what's going on. Right. Right. And, you know, if you think now I worked for child protection in Vancouver, I did it for a year and a half. Okay. Um, it, it, generally it's a very cause and effect type thing. We would get a call, right. You know, uh, Mr. Cohen is hitting his kid. We'd go to the house. We'd investigate. We wouldn't be investigating the systemic, we would, if Mr. Cohen is proven through our investigation that he's hitting this kid, we either remove the child or remove the parent and the parent who's doing the violence has to go to some sort of course before, something like that. That's more of a cause and effect way of thinking about violence in a home. <clears throat> Not very effective by the way, in terms of um, efficacy. Here's a different way of thinking about this. If it's true that we live in families and families are systems, and I think I think they are, and that there is some there are forces that are keeping things the same, right? Everybody's playing their part to keep things the same. Why? Well, we've talked about this before, because change brings anxiety, even if it's good change, moving, um, going for surgery that you know is going to remove the tumor and you'll live longer will bring anxiety. Okay, any change will bring anxiety. So there's something in the human species that pulls for homeostasis, pulls for togetherness, pulls for keeping things the same. So this is an example where if, um, if my child, if Izzy came home and said, I've got a great way to make this family better. Like, oh, Izzy, that's very interesting. Tell me, tell me about the way, right? And he goes, I think we should all go to bed at nine o'clock. Now, first of all, he's probably right. We'd all have better sleep. Like everybody in right? your house would be thrilled. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, uh, now my, my middle child probably would throw his iPad across the room at that point, right? Then Judah would get anxious. My youngest would get anxious, right? I would sit there and say, okay, that's very nice. You go to bed nine o'clock. Like we, we would not all applaud his suggestion about going to bed nine o'clock, even though it might be a great idea, okay? Because it would be too much of a change. So if that's true, physical violence, according to, some of this research is a maladaptive strategy to manage stress and anxiety. Mm. It's a poor attempt to regulate anxiety in a family to calm things down. And it has a, now here's the thing that's going to be really, it's going to be um, uh, tricky. So we're going to have to unpack this a bit. And it has a stabilizing function in relationships. Okay. I see what you're saying because if we're pulling for homeostasis, then potentially violence could try to just keep things the same out of fear. Is that what you mean? Like if I, if you don't keep things the same, I'll hit you. That's, that could be, that's one component. I mean, I think it plays itself out in different ways. Right. Okay. I, I think, I think that could be one component, but what I did is I took sort of this idea and to, to break down, I used the bender example, the stuff that we don't see. 
So let's play this out in the example and then we'll, we'll, we'll discuss and we'll see where we go with this, okay? So imagine the following. So Bender's parents fight all the time. We get that sense. I mean, I think that's the sense Bender was saying that my parents are chronically at each other all the time. And whenever you have a situation where there's chronic fighting in the home, the anxiety spreads everywhere. It doesn't stay just with the two people. It just, it spreads like the flu, okay? So what happens is that anxiety and stress starts to go up in the family. Now we don't know if Bender has siblings. If he doesn't, okay, well then he's in a really tough place because when you're the only child, you absorb all that kind of stuff, yeah. okay? So Bender would catch the anxiety. So even though he's not part of the fight between his mother and his father, right. he would catch it like the flu. And then he would react, why? Because the lower, we just said, in lower differentiated families, people have less capability of regulating their anxiety and choosing what's best. Okay. Yeah. And also that's the only way to deal with anxiety that's being modeled for him. It's not like what's being modeled for him is, oh, when you get anxious, you take some deep breaths, you go and, you know, whatever it is, like what's being modeled is the response to being anxious is you get angry, you yell, you hit. Well, think about the kid in my, in that school, when I was in grade five, right. he hit me when he was coming down that he would, well, he really wouldn't hit me. He would twist my ear he would pinch me but it was annoying you know, like it was, it was but he would use that's the way when he was anxious or frustrated or he wanted something from me he's usually quarters for a video game he would do that to me where'd he learn that from well it was he was almost programmed into him because he saw that you know with his dad and likely his dad saw that with his dad so the word we use in in my industry is called program that we are programmed in certain ways uh, you know a silly example ellie in in judaism is, i think we might have talked about this before um is that in the ashkenaz world in, in the sort of if you're from poland germany europe um you give one kiss when you see someone you give one kiss usually it's on it's on the cheek and not always if you're from the Sephardic world at least in montreal not only do you give two kisses you give a big hug i mean for an ashkenazi jew that's like making out like if someone does that to you you feel like we're married now because right. that's so much intimacy <laughs> but for Sephardic jews the guys are double double kissing each other on the cheek right. you know it, it's sort of a programming it's a cultural programming right? It's a generational programming. Right. And it's really, it, it has a big implication because if, if, for example, you know, when I was in Montreal and a Spartan guy would come up to me and give me two kisses on the cheek, I didn't know what to do with it. Like I got all like, like what are you doing? You know, it's really interesting. And so we're sort of programmed um, in these ways of both affection and violence. Now, so here's, so, okay. So Bender catches the anxiety and what does he do? He has to do something with it. He has to do something with it, right? Like all of us, you, you can bite your nails, you know, uh, some teenagers cut, um, some teenagers will play loud music, but what he does is he picks sides and he yells at his father, okay? I think he said, what about you, dad? What about you, okay? So what happens at this point? The aggression gets detoured away from the marriage and on towards a child. The aggression that was happening between mom and dad and the fighting now gets brought onto a child, but now it's worse. You see, because at least when the father was fighting with his mother, okay, there wasn't as much shame, I don't think. I don't think couples feel as much shame, even when they're really nasty to each other. There is some shame, but not as much. But when a child looks at you and says to you, you're no good as a human being, there's something when a parent hears that from a child that just like, I mean, it takes your heart and goes, Rick. and if you're lower on the differentiation scale, you can't hear your contribution at that point. You just see red. You just see red. Right. Because it's the worst thing that you, you, I think it's one of the worst things a parent could hear is that your child thinks you're just no good. You know, you're just not a good person, okay? And so um, so his father, who obviously is lower on the scale of differentiation, uh, has no way of regulating his anxiety, 
Um, so he, so what he does is he'll, he strikes out at Bender, okay? Almost like an automatic, his automatic programming, he strikes out. And what happens? Now we don't know, but here's the assumption, whether it's a cigar burn or a punch in the face, probably what happens, not in every family, we can come back to this because I have some families where uh, it, um, it uh, escalates. But in this particular situation, father hits Bender, Bender probably runs to his room crying, punches his wall, and then things calm down. At nine o'clock at night, father comes to the Bender's room, knocks on the door, son, we, we have to, I, 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 that was inappropriate. A Bender says, yeah, get into my room. And then things calm down. Do you see what I'm saying? Now do you understand, that's what I was, I think that's what this um, clinician was trying to explain in terms of the process of de-escalation, how violence de-escalates in a, the key here is maladaptive. So if people are thinking right. that this is a strategy to use, it's not, it's not effective. It's maladaptive because what's going to happen is once dad apologizes to Bender and Bender has an okay sleep, it'll be four days later where mom and dad or dad and Bender are in again and violence escalates again. But what, but people learn that the violence actually works, meaning that now mom and dad aren't fighting. When Bender told his father, what about you, Dad? He detoured the violence or the aggression from mom to father to him. That is the triangle. That is the very definition of how a triangle de-escalates anxiety between two people. Okay. I mean, and people listening to this might be. Sorry? Isn't it more often than not, if there's any kind of domestic violence in a marriage, generally at some point it will spill over to the children? Is that how that tends to work? Like that level of escalation can't stay within just one relationship. It eventually like will flow over if, if, if it's not dealt with. You know, it's interesting, Ellie, you know, it's so interesting families and how they work. Um, there, there is no, there, there, the only thing that I've been able to discern in terms of a pattern is that violence begets violence, but it doesn't necessarily mean like I, for example, I've worked with, I've worked with families where, um, everything was kept behind closed doors. So for example, the, the, the clients in my office are talking about their parents who I've never met. And they'll say, well, my dad never hit me, but I, I remember when uh, he was drunk, he beat my mother up in the room. I, I'd hear it all the time, but he was really nice to me. So it never made sense to me. So I'd hear those type of stories. So it, it's not always the case that it, it transfers. It's only usually when there's a triangle, when the child gets involved, gets dragged into it, the, there is more a likelihood of the violence now moving for, uh, between the adults to um, the child. But the, the important thing that I, want to, I wanted to uh, mention here is uh, this idea of both homeostasis, how things pull together to keep things the same, and how the violence has a way of lowering the anxiety. Because it, it, if you don't understand it that way, then the interventions you use are always going to be for naught because you're, you're, you're not gonna understand the, all the dynamics that are happening in the family. So for example, we never talk about Bender's mother and what her contribution might be to poke the bear. Now you might think, how can you say that? The father's the violent one. Well, yeah, and that has to be dealt with. You know, in my office, what I tell people, if there's ever violence, first of all, I, I can't work with violence because the therapy I do increases anxiety, doesn't decrease anxiety. But, you know, Sometimes the person who can make the most change in a family is not the most symptomatic person. Sometimes the person who should be in therapy is not the person who's acting out the most, drinking the most, snorting the most cocaine, the most violent. It's the one who, who has some degree of uh, ability to be calm and to think through next steps. Right. And that might be leaving their partner. 
but um, but I, I think that uh, uh, I just I really wanted to just sort of you know cover this idea of um, the dynamics that are probably going on in, in Bender's family, and that if Bender isn't aware of this. Uh, I think the likelihood of him uh, uh, engaging in this behavior in a future relationship, even though Hugh shows a tenderness to Bender and Claire, and you know, I mean, the truth of the and matter is, doesn't deprogram. Like you can be a very kind, good person, but if you've been programmed that the way to deal with anxiety and the way to deal with stress is that you blow up, beat someone up, and then it dissipates and you feel better, unless you really learn and retrain yourself. That's just programmed into the system. Like I, I think you meet people who are, you know, who are really nice people, who their only coping skill for dealing with anxiety is to hit somebody, you know, and that's how those two things can exist in the same place because they've never learned other ways of de-escalating their own anxiety. So how would he be able to break out of the cycle unless he specifically took that on? Yeah. So, you know, one of the most sobering parts of the study that I read was the conclusions that these clinicians came up with. And it's sobering, but I think it's important. And I think, I think too many clinicians um, uh, sugarcoat the uh, challenges of change, in, both in self and, and in a system. They make it sound way too easy. And then people get frustrated when they don't see the results. Yeah. It's like, one, you know? I think it's the hardest thing in the world. Like, lech lecha right? When we say go to yourself, like it's the ultimate test. It's the ultimate challenge is, is to try to retrain what's been programmed into you. That's just yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, if you go to AA, uh, whatever you think about AA, um, their idea of bottoming out, um, you know, usually involves something horrible uh, for you to stick right. to the program. Right. It doesn't happen when, you know, um, you know, your partner says, you know, I want you to be sober or, you know, so, I mean, I think that, um, right. It has to uh, get to change or die. <laughs> what was that? Sorry. It has to get to change or die. Like, it's like, those are going to, it only, when it gets to that point, are you really going to like turn around and, and say, okay, I got to change this. And I want to, sorry, yeah, I, I, mean I want to throw one thing in because I think this type of violence that we're talking about, it can also look like eating. You know, it can also look like drinking. It can also like all these different ways that show up in families like, oh, we eat our feelings, right? So the parents do that and then the kids do that and the da 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 da. And so I, I think that violence towards, their, towards themselves or towards others shows up in a lot of different ways as a way of coping. Um, I just kind of want to throw that in because it's not just the hitting that that we see yeah well i mean this is why um in in my world of therapy uh we don't get too caught up in the slicing and dicing of psychiatric labels um you know uh it's all sort of it's all sort of my neighbors waving to me it's it's all sort of uh it's all sort of um variations of uh, uh anxiety so you know whether uh you know, you have depression or anxiety or you're cutting or you're, you're drinking too much or you're, you're eating too much or there's violence. It's just different degrees of how an individual will act out their immaturity um, and their anxiety. And in my world, we're much more interested in the dynamics and the, and the problem and not the symptoms so much. Uh, the mental health world out there, they get very caught up into like, you know, is it borderline personality disorder 
or is it type one depression with features of it's like you know bowen bowen when he was because bowen was a psychiatrist so he was in that world very much he, he just saw all of that kind of stuff as we say in yiddish nirishkeit uh and um and there is no huge difference and actually there's there's some very interesting research coming out of um, the uk where they're trying to uh they might um they're discussing is there even any difference between talking about schizophrenia and bipolar disorder uh and psychosis when it really is it's all more or less the same right. thing, right. you know. Anyways, um, okay. So uh, now I lost my train of thought. What, 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 what were <laughs> so you going to say? What do we do? So you know, once all oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. System. Where do we go with it? Is he stuck yeah. with this forever? He's just destined to hit his own kids if he ever has them, or what happens? Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is yes, but 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 <laughs> and but okay. So, so here's the deal. Okay, so here's the deal. What they concluded with their research, which is which is very interesting, is that interventions when violence is happening has a very very poor outcome. I have noticed something similar in my practice. Now, now, uh, I would have to say, um, I actually, I have seen some families have the wherewithal to rise above. Uh, some of this. So I worked with some couples where there was some, they were just teetering on like the cops getting called, you know, they, they came to my office, usually because like the police came one night and that's how they started therapy. Um, and I have seen some um, couples do better. When I say couples, I mean, one of the dyad, not both. It's usually one person who, want, who wants to rise above this either because they're embarrassed or they, they for the kids. Um, I have worked with a few families where um, and I, I've seen this with fathers and mothers where there's violence between a parent and a child and uh, not not the kid. When the kid is brought into therapy, nothing changes. But when a parent comes to therapy and they just get to their bottoming out and they say, I, I, you know, this has to stop. Like, this is what I saw with my parent and this just has to stop. I have seen people reckon with, uh, with that. Um, however, however, I have to say that um, in a similar way, that you and I have discussed about the uh, the focus of marriage versus premarital work, and I think that uh, the focus is backwards. I think more of a focus should be done on working on family of origin issues when things are calmer, when you're single or when you're dating, versus what we have now, which is people go to marital therapy when they're about this close to divorcing. The efficacy ain't that strong. I'm sorry. I don't care if you're doing it from Gottman or family systems or whatever. It's just not that strong in right, terms of the um, preventative the research. medicine versus crisis management, right? Like if you can do the preventative, chances are you won't get to the crisis management and that different way of looking at treatment and healing and right. Interesting. Ask yeah. any family doctor. It's, it's a hell of a lot easier to diet and go to the gym before, you know, you need your bypass than after you have a bypass. Um, so um, here's what they suggested. And um, by suggested, I mean, uh, I think what they were saying is this is not in, currently in place, but I think it's smart. And it, it is it is suggested as a as something that should be studied. So they're not saying that this would work. They're saying they'd be curious to see if this could work. What they're arguing is that uh, these that a family systems-based approach to understanding one's family of origin to reconnect with family members when you're in college. So basically, the idea would be to implement programs for people who've experienced violence in their home before they have kids, before they buy a home, before they're picking. Shoot, you froze. Oh, you froze. 
where their parents came from to us off of uh, some version of my father or mom. I'm just going to do it differently. Uh, I'm just going to go read a bunch of self-help books and I'm going to be different. Um, and I think that the idea is that it takes a tremendous amount of work to break a family of origin, uh, a family, a generational pattern. Um, and that their argument is that the best time to do it isn't in adolescence because you don't have the maturity. Right around college time, you know, maybe 19, 20, 21, uh, to do some serious uh, thinking about where did I come from and what relationships do, and this is so important. It's not about preparing to be a parent. It's not about that. And we spend too much time on that. It's about the current relationships that are fractured right now. Um, I'm in your office because I'm having a really tough time getting married, blah, 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 blah. And I'm telling, tell me about your relationship with your dad. I haven't talked to him in five years. What about your mom? Oh, we're so close. And you know what? We go for coffee and we just talk about my dad. This marriage ain't going to work very well. I'm sorry. I don't care how much therapy you're getting, how many books you're reading. This young woman has to reconcile the fact that she has two parents and they're just human beings and that somehow throughout the process, something happened. Okay. And if she doesn't get more of a neutral stance about this, she is going to end up in somewhere of a similar place. I see it in my office all the time. And so it would be an interesting research study. I don't know if it happened. It was a, the paper was a suggestion to bring a sort of um, family systems oriented approach to violence in a family at college, study it. And then while um, now this isn't to say, by the way, Ellie, if people are listening to this, if they if they have experienced violence in their home, that they should throw their hands up in the air and do nothing, because that is absolutely not true. What the research does seem is that if you think that dragging your partner into therapy or an anger management course, right, a five five session anger management course is going to change the the um, this. Uh, process of what's happening in the family, if you think it's going to change that by focusing on only one person, uh, you will likely be quite disappointed with um, the results. I think there's also a hopeful piece to this too, which would have to do with educating people, letting them know if you grew up in a situation where this is happening in your family, that just it's just a known factor that you yourself are going to have to do some work before you get married. And, and there's a hope in that, which is you're probably destined to repeat it if you don't do the work. But if you do do the work, you can create a new destiny. Like you can do something that would change and break that cycle. And, but I think educationally and culturally, people don't know, like it's not a given. You know, like if you come from a house where there was abuse or there was high anxiety, it's just simply what you do. You go and work on some of these things before you get into a relationship, but that's culturally not something we talk about. It's like, it's like an extra to go get therapy or an extra to go do some of that work rather than like, no, actually it's, you know, if you have high cholesterol in your family, you know that you're going to have to take care of your body in a certain way. It's just not seen like that, but how hopeful that is to say, this, this is one of the things you can do to, to change that pattern. There are things you can. Well, let me, yeah, well, I, look, I mean, I'll, I'll share, uh, you know, I'll share from, uh, from my perspective that I think um, follows along this idea of, of hopefulness. Um, whenever, uh, you know, whenever I talk about family systems theory, I, I say that it's the gift that keeps on giving because um, I was blessed to find this theory. 
Uh, I grew up in a family where my dad, uh, my dad loved me. There was no question, but he he, he could be violent, um, not not in the kind of violence that um, that you might see in a movie. But uh, I was petrified of my dad, um, and he had a horrible temper. And I remember swearing when I was a kid I would never do that to my kids. And I was a great camp counselor. Um, uh, finished my master's degree, was a working therapist, got married late, had kids, uh, and um, it was it, it was Izzy. Uh, he was, I don't know, he was a baby and he was crying one night. He was just crying and crying. And it, we, it, we were, at least I were both sleep deprived. So I was sleeping in the room. He was in the, he was crying. And at one point I just took my hand and I slammed the mattress. And I think I yelled, shut up. And, um, and he stopped, which is interesting, by the way, in terms of how, you know, this stuff can work in a maladaptive way. Because right. it's, it worked because he was scared. Right. But I, I saw myself in that moment. And, um, and I was a bit horrified by, by this. It, it, was, ra- it was just pure red rage. Um, and I spoke with my brother the next day and I was calmer. And I, I said to him, uh, I said, Rob, I had a Steve Nadigal moment. Wow. And he knew exactly what I was talking about right when I said it. Right. Um, and, I, and I said, uh, you know, I, I really got to do something about this. So I spoke to my supervisor about it. And we spoke about it and I continued to speak about it. And then each year with my kids, I, I would slip. I mean, there were just things, I would slip back to a pattern, but it was getting better. I could see how my reactivity was getting better. And here's just a case in point. We just moved, a very, very stressful move. Um, and the one move that I had with my family, um, there, there were threats of violence uh, a few times during the move. And this move, there was, there was really, there was none of that. Um, and so I think that, I guess my, my message is that, um, uh, it is, abs- I agree with you, there's a lot of hope in this, but it starts with taking responsibility for, not just for yourself, but to understand from whence you come from. I mean, to understand that this did not start with your parent, it probably didn't start with your grandparent. This is something that's been passed in a long time. And if you're going to get a little bit better at this, you have to reckon with your history and you have to get, understand it. Um, and then, of course, there's things that, you know, then you could talk about tactics and mindfulness and breathing and exercise. I don't, it has to start with an understanding of what am I up against? Um, And it was sobering for me because of all of my work and all of my background and stuff, you know, that came out and I realized it was something deep, somewhere deep in my, in my brain that's programmed to react. And if I, if, if I don't accept that and understand that it's there, and ain't going anywhere, by the way, Ellie. Let me be clear. It's not like I've I've cured myself of this, right. um, but I've gotten a lot better at it. So what I hope is I am passing on to my children just a little bit more differentiation, just a little bit more maturity, so they'll do a bit better, and hopefully that that down, you know, um, the line. But um, anyway, so I, it, I I guess my point is the work it, it is possible to get better at this. Yeah, I think that's so, I, I think it's great. And I think it's also, it speaks to like what, what we were talking about in the beginning, which is we start to remove the position, the permission in our programming that that's a viable option of how to deal with anxiety, right? It becomes less and less of, a, of an attractive option as other options become available. And I think when we see the mob mentality right? It just takes one person to spill over into that violence. And it suddenly gives permission to everybody else to do the same thing. Even in the reverse, you get one person who just becomes a bystander and does nothing. 
that also gives other people, you know, we talk about the bystander effect, right? It, that also can spread where people will, will watch something horrific happening and, and everyone freezes. Um, so I think it's that breaking out and giving other options of what you can do in those situations. Um, that's the exploration that seems to be, you know, can you give yourself viable options in those moments that don't just have to do with your programming? Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, I'm circling back and uh, maybe we'll end on this point here, you know, of um, the difference, you know, between uh, parental violence towards a child and mob violence. Um, I think that someone, uh, you know, who's operating at a higher scale understands those options. And one of those options is, you know, I just don't think I'm gonna go downtown tonight when there's that protest happening, but because, you know what, I, I know myself, right. and I know what might happen. Um, and I, I think I'm just gonna avoid this, uh, this situation. Um, you know, I think what we, we call that generally is, you know, uh, pe you know, people who have a better sense of situational awareness, right? Some people don't have, you know, you know people like that, Ellie, uh, they just don't have good situational awareness. Like they right. get themselves in like jams go, all the time. And you know, this person's going to end up in the middle of the brawl, right? <laughs> right. Or, or, they, or, or even, but even, no, but, but even if, like a, um, a um, you know, someone who wants to do good, I'm going to go down there and I'm just going to. I'm going to try to dial and, and make peace. That's it's poor situational awareness, you know. In certain situations, I think I think it's important um, to understand that uh, that we're wired as 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 part of the human species to have violence. I mean, uh, with all due respects to John Lennon and Imagine, um, I don't know if at any time soon we are going to be a species where violence won't be an option. I think at times it is important as, as Jews. Um, I'm gonna, I, people could be angry with me when I say this, but I'm very glad that there was the British, the United States Army with their weapons of war to help liberate the camps. Um, and that I wish it would have happened sooner. I don't think it could have happened with social workers. All due respect to the idea of social workers de-escalating everything in the world that's being talking about right now. Um, I think sometimes the police and the army me are um, our appropriate responses given you know given a certain situation um, but look hey uh, you know um, this all does come down to uh, uh, being aware of your surroundings and um, you know and and being clear of what kind of outcome do you want and there are unfortunately Ellie there are too many people right now and this is unfortunate where you, you're hearing people say if you disagree with someone cut them out of your life or punch them in the face I'm hearing this from people who are yeah. much too intelligent to be saying things like that. Yeah. And they're saying it and they're saying it a lot. Um, and, um, you know, there's this general idea, Ellie, sometimes. Um, uh, well, I'll tell a family in my office, if, if, if a family's in my office or a couple and they're screaming at each other, I'll try to de-escalate with a joke. I'll say something like, you know, I'll say either two things. One, I might say, you know, you could do this for free. <laughs> like, just wait till the session's over. And you can go into your car because you're paying me a lot of money to, to, to do this. And that usually will calm them down unless they're like really wealthy. <laughs> right. Because they, they forget. It's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're paying for this right now. The other thing I might say uh, to them, and I've done this before, is um, I'm going to leave now. Okay. Someone text me when you're done. And then they stop right away. Right. Right. Uh, the general idea is I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to sit here. And then, of course, in, and I've only done this maybe once or twice in my entire 30 years of working. I will end this session because I don't want to be privy and support violence in my office, even emotional violence. And so I'll just say the session is over. Um, you guys decide if you want to come back. And generally, they, they, one of them taps into higher maturity and goes, that was inappropriate for me to do that in a session. So it's, 
we need leaders who can who can you know talk about how can we be how can we hold differences of opinion uh, without punching people in the face or cutting people out of our lives. Um, yeah, and modeling modeling mature disagreement, modeling mature differences of opinion, and modeling how you respect another person even though you think they're crazy. Um, you know, I, I, we just do not see enough of that out there, and it definitely most. And I, I'm sorry to say, but too many of my colleagues are throwing gasoline on the fire. I have no problem with people being upset with me. I'm saying it and I will continue to say it until there is a change of tone amongst therapists because if therapists can't rein it in, what chance does anybody else have? I mean, like it's just, you know, I mean, we should be modeling that at least. Anyways, okay, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> okay, so in terms of Bender, coming back around to, to the Breakfast Club, um, you know, it seems that even though Bender is right now, um, destined to repeat the violence that's happening in his family. The hope is, let's say he lands in someone's office in five years and starts to say, hey, I, I don't want to repeat this. There is a way to reprogram or add other things into the program that might um, balance out what he's what he lived through and how he was programmed to deal with things. Does that sound? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Ellie, what, what what could happen, by the way, what could happen, it's a possibility if there was a breakfast club too, um, is that, you know, uh, you've heard me talk about this, about marriage, right? We pick people, uh, we pick partners to marry more or less to, this is a, a, a David Freeman idea, more or less to replace, repeat in our family, or we pick partners to do something different, right? Now, Claire says this, no, sorry, Bender says this. Remember, Bender says to Claire, um, he says, you know how you hate your family or something? Wouldn't it be a, what did he say? Wouldn't it be a shot or something if you brought me home? Remember right. he said something like that near yeah, the end? Like a way to stick it to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right at the end of the film. Yeah, exactly, a way to stick it. Right. Right. Now, um, uh, I have seen couples like that. The, you know, the, you know, sweet, uh, soft-spoken accountant marries the crazy flamboyant artist and the parents are like oh what are you you know right. um and uh, it works in the beginning and then it doesn't um and so what could happen is bender and claire date they marry claire's parents are freaking out right uh bender's parents are too drunk to go to the wedding or whatever okay and they marry and then of course at some point um the honeymoon phase will end and bender's bender but claire is so important to him okay that he doesn't want to lose the marriage. Um, and so he does work. I've seen this, by the way. Right. I've seen this. So that's another approach where, as, as David Snarch calls it, marriage is a people-growing machine. Or let me rephrase, marriage could be a people-growing machine because that, that's what David Snarch's big thing was. Um, so, you know, it's not hopeless. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of work. Right. But isn't that also just, I know I'm looking at the time, but isn't that just also another version of the change or die? You know, like if I want to keep this marriage, I have to change. You know, the, it's just just rather than hitting rock bottom, you find something that means enough to you that says change it. Like it's it's either change or lose this, and and it's kind of that same motivation. Yeah. Now, now, now look. I mean, it's you know, it, it takes two, right? I mean, meaning that like if one person is out and they're out, <laughs> you know, we're not talking like we have to be. You know, let's come back down to earth here for a second. Right. I mean, it's not. You know, I mean, if you say you know, there's no such thing as gravity, and you jump off the roof, you're going to find out there's gravity, right? So, right. Um, yes, uh, uh, yeah, but but yes, um, 
in this situation, Bender would be married to Claire. Um, and at some point he'd get into a fight and blame Claire for everything. And you're such a prissy and the, and the focus would be on Claire. And at some point Claire would look and go, I'm leaving your ass. Like, right. I'm going to leave you. Right. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to take the kids. And by the way, I, you know, everything is oriented towards me. The courts will support you. You're going to have nothing, you know, and then Bender will wake up perhaps and go, I don't want to lose this. Right. I got to start looking at me. So marriage has that potential. So yeah, I, I mean, that's, a little bit fantasy, I think, in a situation like this, and uh, you know, no, let's let's leave it. Time to think about Claire and Bender. Bender and Claire feel a little happy. <laughs> yeah, Bender and Claire end up together. They have a couple of kids. Uh, uh, Bender ends up in in therapy, um, and um, you know, and, and everything ends uh, well. Uh, and uh, because they bought my book, of course, of they course. bought my book. <laughs> of course, and you know, they bought my book. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Wow. That's the end of the breakfast club. Crazy. Um, okay. So I think uh, next week, what were we thinking of doing? Oh, Lost Boys. Well, I thought, um, I thought what we were going to do is we were going to see how things play out with the election over the next couple of days, but there isn't, I don't find this like, I mean, I've only been watching on the periphery, but there's no big like, whoa, you know? So, I mean, I'm open to any film. I still think that, um, by the way, Ellie, we're gonna have a contest, right? We're gonna run a contest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the next, uh, I think we'll look at it in the next few weeks, like maybe b closer to before the new year, I think. Um, sure, okay. Where so, people would want to do it. So um, someone, uh, someone made a recommendation to me um, for a film. Uh, and I forget, I, I would like to crowdsource this a bit, but The Lost Boys is great. I mean, I, there's, I think there's, there's some parents in there, right? There's some parents in The Lost Boys. Yeah, and... the, I think there were a few ideas. So we were thinking about Dead Poets Society. We were thinking about uh, 16 Candles, which we haven't done as part of the John Hughes canon. Um, yeah. Say Anything with John Cusack. So there's a few things on deck. So maybe we'll throw it out there if, uh, if anyone- Have you, by the way, have you ever seen Igby Goes Down? Yeah, I have seen that. Ellie, we I know what the- But isn't it that a more out, recent think, film? It's, it's very, very, very early 2000s. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah, okay. There's That's a lot of parenting and there's some stuff with- uh, IVF, I think it's a, anyways, that's a, but how about this? Um, <laughs> if, if we don't get any suggestions, okay. the Lost Boys, we're going to do the Lost Boys. Okay. Okay. And I'll put up a poll. Vampires Actually, and I can put a poll on JFI on the Jewish Family Institute group and put up a few Excellent. movies and we'll see if people vote. Wonderful. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks, Avram. Okay. Have an easy rest of the move. Thanks for calling in from your car. <laughs> okay. Thanks a bunch. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye.